Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists, with your hosts, Matt Gass and Nina Goad. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the world of our skin with a range of dermatological experts, tackling topics from the clinical to the cosmetic. So today we were planning a very ambitious episode covering a range of common facial dermatology issues. But um, we chatted for so long about the very first of these issues, rosacea, that this is now solely a rosacea episode. I mean, that completely serves us right for being so ambitious. Um, but not to worry, I'm sure the topics that we didn't get to today, including pigmentation issues and things like that, we will get to another time. So rosacea is probably a little less known than some of the other skin issues that we cover, like acne. Um, so for a bit of background for people who need to know more about rosacea, here's an excerpt from a patient information leaflet that the British Association of Dermatologists has produced. Rosacea is a common skin condition, usually occurring on the face, which predominantly affects fair-skinned people aged 40 to 60 years old, but can affect anyone regardless of skin type or age. It is more common in women, but when affecting men, it may be more severe. It's a chronic condition and can persist for a long time, and in any individual, the severity tends to fluctuate. Rosacea tends to affect the cheeks, forehead, chin and nose, and is characterised by persistent redness caused by dilated blood vessels, small bumps and pus-filled spots similar to acne. There may also be uncomfortable inflammation of the surface of the eyes and the eyelids. So hopefully that's given you a nice primer on what we'll be talking about today. So I will be introducing our guests in a minute. But first up, we've also been fortunate enough to get permission from the British Skin Foundation, an amazing skin charity that we often work with, to use extracts of an interview that they conducted with one of their patient ambassadors, an amazing blogger called Lex, which delves into her experience of living with rosacea, as well as some tips that she has for other people. So throughout the episode today, we'll be sharing little extracts of that where relevant. And in fact, we're going to jump straight in with the first extract now, which is Lex explaining what she wishes everybody knew about rosacea. The things that I wish people knew about rosacea. There are different types of rosacea and everybody's presents differently. No one case is the same as the next. It's not just blushing. People assume that we're drunks. People see the flushed cheeks, the red nose, and assume that we have a drinking problem. People often ask us if we're sunburned. No, I'm not contagious. It can be a painful and frustrating condition to live with, but it's not just physical. Having rosacea can have psychological effects as well as physical ones. It can affect your social life and therefore your relationships. It can affect your work and it can have a devastating impact on your self-esteem. Your rosacea is not the most important or interesting thing about you. Some people may think that a little bit of blushing can be quite cute or pretty, but actually the symptoms of rosacea can vary from itching, swelling, burning. Those with skin conditions are at an increased risk of anxiety and depression. So it's never just a case of your skin being a bit red. I think it's quite clear that living with rosacea can be challenging, particularly if you're living with other people's judgments as well. So a little bit of kindness, and actually not just kindness really, it's, it's more thoughtfulness, can go a long way. Now, onto our fantastic guests today. Our guest is Dr. Emma Craythorn, consultant dermatologist and the president of the British Cosmetic Dermatology Group. Hi Emma, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be able to come along and contribute to this very meaningful series. Hi Emma, oh it's brilliant to have you on today. Obviously we've worked with you over the years in many different capacities and I just know that this is going to be a great show because you're always so helpful and informative. 
So I wanted to start with a question about rosacea. And rosacea, I think, is often confused with acne. But can you explain for us the difference? Yes, sure. It also doesn't really help that we call rosacea acne rosacea, which probably confuses people even more. And I also suspect because this is on the face and because it consists of these red spots or red bumps, it's easy to understand why people might confuse the two. However, there are very distinct differences and they are two very separate diseases. And it's incredibly important to differentiate between them because, in fact, sometimes the treatments, particularly of acne, would certainly flare and make rosacea worse. So whenever we look at a patient clinically, the story is often very different between somebody who's presenting with rosacea and somebody who presents with acne. In somebody presenting with rosacea, they will often describe either redness to the face in the form of a flushing that is triggered by um, certain things. So somebody might have a flare in response to UV or in response to alcohol or a number of other things that I can talk to you about. Um, Whereas acne doesn't tend to have that flare. In rosacea, you will often see clinically looking at somebody, the rash is predominantly located in the center of the face rather than often around the edges, again, which you would typically see in acne, although acne can obviously be all over. Um, But rosacea tends to be concentrated on the mid face. And then there is one key feature in acne because it is a disorder of that hair follicle, the pilosebaceous unit. And it's a disorder where more sebum is made and tends to get blocked on the surface. Then you get blackheads and you get whiteheads in acne, but you do not get that in rosacea. So clinically, if you don't see the blackheads and the whiteheads, then it's probably more in the rosacea territory compared to the acne. And rosacea is really a disorder of a number of different things, not just the hair follicle. It's often a response, people will have very sensitive skin and that might be because the barrier of the skin is not working in perhaps the right way. So they will say their skin is sensitive to certain products being put on the skin, it might cause it to flare. We also know that in people who have rosacea, it's more likely that things that would normally be in somebody's skin and not bother somebody else in somebody who has rosacea, those things will really cause a flare um, and, a, and a, a trigger of inflammation within the skin. So as well as having this barrier change, it's probably something to do with our own immunity and how we respond to things that would otherwise be in our skin. One of the things that's on our skin that everybody has are these things called demodex mites. And the purpose of these mites are they don't live a very long life. They situate themselves down in that hair follicle and they come up and gobble up the dead skin cells and gobble up bits of semen. Sorry, not semen. (laughs) (laughs) That has made my day. They gobble up bits of semen and then interestingly on the semen theme and then they reproduce on the surface. They then head back down and they die. So they don't live a very long life. But these uh, little demodex mites thought in people who have rosacea are probably a bit more sensitive to them in in their skin. And that can often cause the flare. They also have bugs that live inside the demodex mites themselves. And actually, we don't know whether it's the demodex mites that are the problem or this little um, bacteria called Bacillus olinorium that lives inside the gut of the demodex um, or whether that's a problem. So we've got a barrier issue. We've got a problem with our immunity being overactive. 
We've got perhaps an overabundance of these little mites that live on our skin. Um, and then something to do with our genetics, as always. Um, we know that people who have rosacea, they're more likely to have a relative that has rosacea also. And then lastly, as a dermatologist, you can't say anything without mentioning UV radiation. And we do know that often patients with rosacea will be triggered by UV radiation. They have a very um, hyperactive vascular system in response to UV. So in some of the types of rosacea, we think this very chronic exposure to UV might be part of the problem. All of that is very, very different to the problem with acne. Acne is a problem of the pilosebaceous unit, the hair follicle itself, and how sebum leaves that hair follicle. So two very distinct diseases, but because they often present with red spots on the face, the two might be confused. I mean, that's that's fascinating. It seems quite complex, perhaps in comparison to acne. Maybe that's just my perception of it. You mentioned the demodex mites. I was aware of them already, but I got to admit it still gives me a shiver whenever I think about them crawling on my face but I know that's ridiculous and it doesn't actually make any difference either way. They're very cute these little mites if you were to see it down the microscope I sometimes see them with my confocal microscope and they just sit there with their little hands like kind of grappling they're, they're very cute to look at you shouldn't be scared of them. <laughs> oh I'm gonna have to have a look now because actually I've always been slightly freaked out by the idea but I think that would probably help if they look cute. Do we all have them then? Are they quite normal? Absolutely everybody has them. They make up, you know, part of our, our skin microbiome. We all have them. Um, and it goes deeper than that because then there's the bacteria that lives on the mite, you know. So we all have them. And it's just we don't really know whether it's our immune response to these mites or immune response to the bacteria is the problem or whether we just have more of them and then because you have more of them then your immune response is to the more of them so it's difficult to know but everybody has them i'm not going to touch my face again because i don't want to squash them because they sound quite cute yeah <laughs> we'll have to share a picture of them on our on our social media when the when the podcast goes out oh um, definitely so sure people will be interested to to see quite how cute they actually are <laughs> I'll do that when I took one with when my microscope was working. So I'll find that and send it to you. Oh, please Perfect. do. <laughs> so you mentioned at one point flare-ups of rosacea and that they're caused by triggers. Can you just explain a little bit more about what these triggers are or at least what common triggers are and how people can best manage that? Yes. So we know that rosacea is likely to progress and get worse whenever you have more flare-ups. And it's therefore very important to try and work out what your flare-ups are or your triggers are for that rosacea. I ask all of my patients to keep a diary or keep it on their iPhone really now to be modern. Um, and I ask them to just whenever they do have a flare-up, what has happened in that preceding couple of hours prior to that? Um, and just write it down and try and go into this with an open mind and no preconceptions because people often think, I have red wine, that's what causes it. I have, you know, the, but go into it with a very open mind and keep a diary and keep that diary for about two to three months so that you can really pinpoint what your triggers are. Because 
trying to control those is going to be very important in reducing the onset of the rosacea a progression of the rosacea that you have so probably the most common trigger is uv radiation uh, and we know that uv radiation is likely to be one of the causes as well so that makes sense as well as the uv radiation you also have this infrared so that inflammation is also likely to um, progress rosacea forward. So the first and most common trigger is UV and extremes of temperature. So if you're going into a hot sauna or a hot gym or a hot environment or summertime, then that excessive heat is often people will report their skin flaring or becoming more red or inflamed or sensitive. So they're the, the two top ones really. Anything that increases your body temperature, your metabolic rate. So, for example, things like exercise, um, having a hot drink, having spicy foods. And what about alcohol? Is it true that's a common trigger? Alcohol is a trigger. They did a, a big study on all of these nurses. Um, and they must think nurses drink a lot of alcohol. But they did this study on all of these nurses. And I think it might have been in Ireland. Um, and they looked at alcohol. And if you were drinking alcohol, it did contribute to having a slightly increased level of the flares that you would have. Not as much as you might think, but there was a slight increase. And it was more notable, actually, with white wine as opposed to red wine. So that's why I'm trying to say, please go into this without any preconceptions. Have an open mind about what might trigger it. Yeah, it sounds like that's a really good point to keep mentioning. So our last episode looked at the psychological impact of skin conditions. And one aspect of that was the impact of psychological stress and how that can exacerbate some skin conditions. Is that a common issue for people with rosacea? Psychological stress, really, um, with many skin diseases, it can cause flares. And rosacea is a no exception to this. And you will often find in response to an acute psychological stressor that patients report flares and obviously things like menopause and there's some medications that might contribute to it. But they are the main things. So how quickly do these flare ups happen after you've been sort of exposed to your trigger? Is it literally hours? Yes, it is within hours. It's usually within one hour, really. Oh, wow. But... That's not to confuse people because people might then think that you only get the flare up for that short period of time afterwards. But these things like exposure to um, heat or exercise. So not only with exercise, are you getting hotter? So you stimulating your vascular system in that way. But in addition, you sweat. And, you know, for some people who have rosacea, even the sweat on the surface of their skin is irritating to it. So those things all happen quickly. But it's accumulation of all of these triggers that will then contribute to the long-term progressiveness of the rosacea. So that's why, although you will see a response after a flare very quickly, lots and lots of flares over a period of time will actually mount up in terms of how your rosacea is and you know move you further into worser type. That leads me to ask, so how long does a flare typically last? Because for a patient who perhaps if they exercise, it triggers a flare. That's a huge decision to have to make then. Do I want to keep exercising or do I have to give up exercise if I'm going to have a flare up each time? And I guess it might slightly depend on whether that flare up is just a, a, a short scale thing or a long scale thing. Is there any way that you can predict how long it's going to last for? 
No, not really. And everybody is very different as well. However, things like exercise, I encourage people to continue to do that. But there's other things that we add into their skincare or just little tricks that you can do. Because obviously exercise is very, very important. And I would say to all of my patients, you know, you continue to exercise. It's a bit like whenever we think about skin cancer, you know, um, being outside is not good for the risk of developing skin cancer in somebody with a fairer skin type. However, being outside is very good for your overall health and well-being and your blood pressure and, you know, extension to your life because you're being fit generally when you're being outside. And it's good for our psychological stress. But you have to take precautions. So for skin cancer, you'll put on your sun cream, you'll put on your protective wear, but you'll still go outside. You might be in the, the shady side of the street. Um, you might not go out in the midday heat, but you will still take those precautions. And it's the same as for rosacea. So I say to people, go and exercise go and drink hot drinks if you want a hot drink but just think of a few things that we can do to try and make that a bit easier so if you're exercising make sure that you carry your water in a water bottle that you put lots and lots of ice in the water bottle to keep you cool you can get these little ice cool packs that you wear around your neck when you're exercising and at the back of your neck that keep you cool equally you can get ones that that are on your wrist and little these little ice packs that are mobile and all all of these little tricks that you can do to keep you cool you know wearing the right clothing so that you're able to um, reduce your body heat if you're exercising just those little tips and tricks that means that you can continue to do these things but perhaps you're not you know getting yourself quite as hot as you would have done before you made those slight modifications i think those are all actually really helpful tips and it also gives me uh, an opportunity to mention something that i've had up my sleeve so as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we've been lucky enough to get permission from the British Skin Foundation to use some audio that they recorded with one of their ambassadors, Lex. Lex is a blogger from York and she has rosacea. The video in question is about living with rosacea. And one of the topics she actually mentions, which is relevant to our current discussion, is how to deal with triggers and what to do once you've identified your triggers. So here's a snippet from Lex talking about that. Hopefully it'll be really helpful to people at home. Once you've found your triggers, you can begin to eliminate them or work around them. I think this is the point that a lot of people get discouraged because they see a list of things that they should avoid if they have rosacea and they just feel like, well, what am I allowed to eat? What can I do? When I was a 21 year old at university, trying to have fun, trying to make new friends, a doctor telling me that I couldn't drink, I should get eight hours of sleep a night, I should have a great diet, I should avoid stress, I should never use hair straighteners. You know, the list goes on and on. And for some people it's just not feasible. I found that the best way to work around my rosacea is to bargain with it. So if I've had an absolutely terrible day, all I want is a gigantic slab of cheese and a big glass of wine. I know that my skin's going to hate it, but I'm willing to deal with the consequences because in that moment, my need for cheese and wine is bigger than how I feel about my rosacea. And for each person, those bargaining chips will be different. For some people, they won't be able to give up marathon running. For some people, they won't be able to give up really hot baths. That's totally different depending on the person. For some people, they're completely fine with going teetotal, having you know a raw juice diet or whatever. It's 
completely individual to you and it's about what you are willing to put up with in order to make your skin happy. Another thing that is good to remember is not to try to remove all of your triggers at once. This is like someone making a new year's resolution to give up alcohol, smoking and start going to the gym all in the same week. If you remove things one at a time, it's also easier to see the impact that it has on your skin. If you removed alcohol, certain foods, and exercise all from your skin in the same week, and your skin started looking loads better, how would you know which of those things was the worst for you? So by removing your triggers one by one, not only does it make it more manageable for you, but it also means that you can better pinpoint exactly what is triggering your rosacea. Those sorts of tips and tricks are so helpful and probably not things that people would always know about or stumble across when reading about rosacea. Yeah. But in addition to those sorts of tips, how do you go about actually treating rosacea from a sort of medical point of view? So treating rosacea is complex because it presents in slightly different ways. And I'll run through with you this, the common ways that present. So some people just present with background redness. They don't have any lumps. They don't have any bumps. They don't have anything else. They're just background redness. Other patients present and they have these papules and pustules. In other words, bumpy spots and pussy spots. Some people present and they just have eye symptoms. So they have um, itchy, gritty eyes with little bumps around the edge of the eyes and red veins quite prominent on the white part of the eye. And some people present with thickening of the skin, what's called a phimatous change. So they can develop thickening on the nose or on the forehead or the chin. So these are different ways in which rosacea presents. And actually, what we have to do is treat those individual presenting signs. So for everybody who has rosacea, I'll just give you the general kind of care that I say. For everyone who has rosacea, I say, keep that diary. You do need to know your flares. And then there's a simple basic skincare for everybody. So the barrier of your skin is not as great as other people's. It's much more sensitive. And therefore, you know, you cannot use products that have in it fragrances. You cannot use harsh alpha hydroxy acids, you know, with glycolic acid. You just cannot use those products. You cannot use things like vitamin C or other harsh chemicals that you might want to be, you know, um, clean the skin or thin the skin. They do not work for patients who have rosacea. It has to be incredibly, incredibly simple. So I always recommend a synthetic detergent to wash with that's slightly more acidic in line with the pH of the skin. So it's very gentle washing. And then it's about finding an emollient for the skin because you need to keep the skin as moisturized as possible to try and almost put like a little blanket over the surface of it to protect it from being so sensitive. And I recommend you do that twice a day. And then it's about protecting the skin from further injury from UV radiation and infrared. So that's finding a sunblock that you like to use or a sun factor that you like to use that's put on every single day, whether it's winter, whether it's summer, whether you're inside, whether you're outside, but it has to go on every day to protect from ongoing UVA and UVB damage. So there's lots of SPF products that have been developed now for people with sensitive skin and it's just a matter of trial and error to find the one that's most comfortable for you but that simple basic skincare is for everybody with rosacea so a very plain wash a very plain moisturizer and SPF and avoidance of all of these harsher chemicals so that's what everybody should use and then you come on to treating the individual type so 
if somebody has a flushing or a redness to the skin, then there are certain, obviously it's about controlling the flares and there's certain pharmacological methods that we can recommend, but the, the evidence for them, to be honest, is, is not particularly great. The oral medicines that you might take, we use lasers to treat individual telangiectasia. So these little vessels that appear around the nose or across the mid cheeks, they respond beautifully to um, lasers as well as the background redness can have a good response with laser treatment there's a solution called bromonidine and this topical bromonidine at 0.33 percent as a gel is effective at reducing this background redness that many people have and that does well some people don't tolerate it particularly well and some people mention that they have a rebound so you should know this before you would try it but if flushing or background redness is a real problem for you then it's definitely worth a try with bromonidine perhaps in a small part of the face to start with and then there's other topical pharmacological means like um, tretinoin we used to think that you should never use something like tretinoin in rosacea but actually used with good um, supervision it's been shown in studies that it can improve the background redness and then medications that other topical medications are usually reserved and used for patients who have the the lumps and the bumps, so the papules and the pustules of rosacea. And these are medicated treatments that are available normally from your doctor. And the number one that we tend to probably recommend now is 1% ivermectin. It's been shown in multiple head-to-head studies to be the most effective and the best tolerated of all of the, the treatments and then closely followed by azelaic acid or topical metronidazole. Patients who are particularly troubled with um, the lumps and the bumps of rosacea do well on a course of antibiotics. Now, when I say a course, I don't mean like a course that you would have because you've got a chest infection, you take four tablets a day for a week. This is different. This is taken in a submicrobial dose, so below what you would normally take to kill a bacteria. So a low level of the antibiotic, and it's taken normally once a day for three, four, five, six months to, to control those papules and pustules. And then you'll have a break and see whether this recurs or not for you. And then for very resistant cases, we can move on to medications like isotretinoin in a low dose, again, slightly different to what we might use for acne to control things. When I'm treating patients with ocular rosacea, so the eye features, I nearly always do this in conjunction, unless it's very straightforward, with an ophthalmologist. Ocular rosacea can get quite serious, so I always like to work with the ophthalmologist to ensure joint care for my patients. But simple things like lid washes and warm compresses, using baby shampoo to clean the lid margin can often be very, very helpful before you need to go on to an oral antibiotic for those. And then when it comes to the type of rosacea that's associated with growth of the skin, so thickening of the skin, you might get around the nose called a rhinophyma. I mean, the only real treatment for that comes to debulking it with either surgery using a blade or lasers. Would that type of intervention, that surgical intervention or lasers, leave scarring? So... If you're treating the background redness, no, that doesn't leave scarring unless you've used the wrong settings of the laser, which and it could obviously cause any kind of scarring. But no, when it comes to treating the rhinophyma, so the thickening of the nose skins, it tends not to because you've got an abundance of these uh, sebaceous glands and that's where the skin almost will be regenerating from. So no, it tends not to. 
if you were to be particularly overly aggressive with it, then it can leave scarring, but it tends not to. However, it does leave the skin looking slightly whiter on the surface of it and a bit shinier. Not really a true scar, but a bit whiter and a bit shinier. I see. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So can people get these sorts of treatments like lasers on the NHS for rosacea or would they have to go privately? So if you're thinking about the um, the vessel type, so where we might use something called a pulsed dye laser or a KTP laser or an IPL, which isn't a laser, but if we're using any of these devices to treat the background redness or the individual telangiectasia, so the individual vessels, then that's not usually available on the NHS at all. If somebody has a particularly bad form of flushing and it's having a huge impact on their quality of life, then in special circumstances, funding can be applied for. But for the rhinophyma, so the big bulky nose or the big bulky chin, then that is available as an NHS procedure for trusts that have the facility and the capacity for doing that treatment. Okay. And if people wanted to go privately to see someone to get treatment, have you got any recommendations on what they should be looking out for? Like who should be doing this for them? Well, I have. (laughs) Um, So it's very, very important that whenever you're seeking out somebody to perform a laser treatment for you, that they are somebody who understands the nature of your skin condition. So ideally, that really should be a dermatologist and a consultant dermatologist. Remember that term consultant dermatologist means that somebody has gone through all of their dermatology training. And also what you can now look up are doctors specialist qualifications on the GMC website. And also part of this the JCCP, which recognizes doctors that do perform these type of treatments. So that's how you can assure that you're getting a good quality of um, of care. So I would look for somebody who has the term consultant dermatologist or for the rhinophyma, a lot of consultant plastic surgeons will also do this procedure. But it's how many of these have you done? What is your success rate? What kind of side effects would you anticipate that I would expect? That's the kind of questions you want to be asking whenever you go along to meet with somebody. It's so important to do your due diligence before you attend for a laser consultation appointment because the regulation's a little bit sketchy. So unfortunately, you have to do that work yourself. So check the GMC website, check the JC. CCP, check that that person is a consultant at the level that they say they are. And then that can make you feel secure about attending for a procedure like this. Yeah, I think what we'll do actually is maybe on our social media, Derm Tested, we'll share some more information about how to find a practitioner because I think that's really important. It's really important to make sure that people do know how to access that because it's so difficult and it's so confusing. There is just no regulation it on these social media sites and often you know overinflation of what people say they can do and what they actually can do that it's so confusing so for acne i know often the process will be that somebody they have acne they try over-the-counter treatments for a little while and then go to see their gp if it's a little bit more severe or it's not shifting And then they will try treatments with their GP and they might not necessarily be referred to a dermatologist at any point unless GP thinks it's necessary. With rosacea, is that the same process or is it necessary to be referred to a dermatologist straight away if it's rosacea? I mean, I'm biased when you ask that question, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody should see a dermatologist first line. Um, So... 
I think that the message is very similar from all of us on how rosacea should be treated. So, you know, in an ideal world, of course, I think that you should see your dermatologist straight away. And I wish the facilities were there for everybody to have that. And they can do. So if your GP thinks that your rosacea is severe enough, then they will tend to refer. But the treatment is quite clear in the sense that what you need to do beforehand is understand your triggers, understand that basic skincare, and then treating those individual targeted signs that you get in rosacea. And I suspect if your GP understands that, then this is something that can be done in the community. Okay, that's good to know. It's just good to set people's expectations, I suppose, because I think it can be quite frustrating for people if they're in the mindset that they're going to get to see a dermatologist to manage their skin condition. It can be a bit frustrating to be sort of stuck at the GP level for a long time. You mentioned earlier about the various blood vessels and issues around there. I know thread veins can be an issue for people with rosacea. Could you just explain what's going on there, what the issue actually is that's causing that? Yeah. So if you imagine in rosacea, we talked about why people get it. So it's a little bit about they've got sensitive skin and it's stimulated by a number of different triggers. Well, this stimuli also stimulates inflammatory response within the skin. So as things inflame, it brings in lots of little other messengers to the skin and it tells the blood vessels to proliferate and to grow a bit more. So because those things are growing, then the blood vessels become more visible. So that's one reason why. And then the second reason why is we know that UV radiation, especially UVA, as it penetrates deeper into the skin, will contribute more so to the skin thinning. So in other words, you lose collagen and it therefore makes those blood vessels that you have caused to grow more be more visible because the skin is thinner in that area. So it's a combination of both of these things. You obviously mentioned it as an issue for people with rosacea, but is it common amongst people that don't have rosacea? Yes. So everybody probably with time will end up with little visible blood vessels that they can see around the corners of the nose. So the wing of the nose, we call the ala, you see these little tiny blood vessels coming up over the surface of it. And these are the end blood vessels of the important vessels that go up the mid part of our face. So these are very strong vessels that support all of the skin function, but they are under pressure sometimes. And so with time anyway, most people will have these and most people will get more of them in response to UV exposure. So if somebody doesn't have rosacea but has exposed themselves to a lot of sunshine over their time, then they are at increased risk of developing these telangiectasia also. So what would be the main treatments just for thread veins or spider veins without rosacea? Is there anything that can be done? So if you're just talking about an individual vessel that you can see quite clearly, so that's normally presents as either a little straight line of a vessel on the skin, or sometimes it's a central spot that looks like a red dot and it has little vessels coming around off it. They're called spider nevi because they look like the body of a spider and the legs of a spider. So they're the spider nevi or else you just have these curly or straight line telangiectasia. For those, treatment using a pulsed dye laser is probably the most effective, most efficient and most satisfying way of getting rid of them. So the pulsed dye laser works by selectively sending energy into the skin that is absorbed by things that are red. 
So in this case, it is the vessel or the spider nevus. And the energy is taken up by the red thing in the skin and it causes the vessel to essentially coagulate and to break down. And your body's own immune system comes along and recognizes that this vessel has been obliterated and gobbles it up and then takes it away and disperses it. So it's a very efficient, effective way. You normally just need one treatment. Sometimes you need another couple if it's a thicker vessel underneath it that's driving it. But normally you just need one treatment. You're left with a little bruise if it's a spider nevi or just a bit of redness if it's a straight line vessel and it settles down normally within the week. So, I mean, that sounds quite futuristic and actually kind of sounds quite fun as a procedure, <laughs> but maybe that's just my... It's incredibly fun and it's incredibly efficient and it's usually not particularly expensive a procedure to have done either. So if you do have one of these that's particularly bothering you, then it is one of those procedures that we do that is fairly low risk. And usually one visit is enough to sort it out for you. Okay, well, that's good to know. The background redness, however, is a bit less satisfying when it comes to lasers because you don't have one particular vessel that you're targeting. It's a whole lot, all of these very superficial dilated vessels, and you don't see the individual vessels. It's just a background redness. That is effectively treated with a laser, but it normally takes many treatments and the treatments are usually spaced about a month apart. Everybody's response is slightly different, but the studies show that it does improve the flushing and it does improve the background redness, but that is less satisfying because it's a longer time in that improvement rather than just one single vessel that you can see and zap it and that's it cleared. Okay. Well, that's good that people know that though. And that's all private treatment, I assume. Yes, usually. Yeah, and that's really good to know. God, that was interesting. Who knew half of that? I mean, I've only worked in dermatology for 15 years, so I should know. (laughs) But yeah, no, that's really interesting. Thanks so much, Emma. I really appreciate you taking time out your day because I know you're busy. So yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks so much for coming on. So I hope you enjoyed our chat with Dr. Emma Crathorn today and you learned as much as I did. We have quite a few different topics planned for the coming weeks, including contact allergy, hair loss and the skin microbiome. So keep an eye out for those episodes. But if you have any questions on those topics that you'd like to see answered, then please drop us a message on Instagram or Twitter where you can find us at Derm Tested. We'd love to know what you'd like to hear from our experts. One thing that we didn't get to talk too much about today was the emotional impact of rosacea. So I just want to finish today's episode with an extract from Lex's interview on the emotional impact of her rosacea and how she handles that. Do I ever feel in a low mood because of my rosacea? Yes. I went through a period of being really upset about it. I had a lot of woe is me, why me kind of moments. When I was first diagnosed, I didn't take it very well. I was 21, I was at university. I had never had any problems with my skin before. I didn't understand why this had happened to me and that there was no cure and that I was potentially looking at you know, 70 years of a face that I didn't recognise. Over time, I've learned to deal with my rosacea. I now have it mostly under control. I know what works for me and what definitely doesn't work for me, but it can still be hard to deal with an incurable skin condition. I sometimes look at friends who are wearing no makeup and have absolutely 
wonderful skin and feel incredibly jealous. I feel frustrated when I want to just quickly nip out for an afternoon with my husband and I feel like I still have to put on makeup to give myself confidence. If I'm having a bad rosacea day, it's not something that I can forget. Even if I cover it with makeup like I have today, I can still feel the pulsing, the burning. It's constantly on my mind. I don't think there's an hour that goes past in my day that I'm not aware of my rosacea or thinking about it or worrying about it. And that can be pretty exhausting. But it's important to remember that rosacea does not define you. Your rosacea is not the most important or interesting thing about you. Nobody is as critical of you as you are of yourself. I try to think what I would say to a friend if they came to me with my concerns. Thank you.